Now for our scripture reading. Matthew 22. When the Pharisees went out and laid plans, excuse me, then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. If you aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, and he asked them, Whose image is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, So give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Eli. Thanks for calling attention to my shirt. I am trying to will fall into existence. The same is true with our common meal theme of soups and chilies. Uh, I'm ready for it. Bring it on. Good morning. Good to see you. My name is Austin. If I haven't a chance to meet you, look forward to that. Uh, All right. Let's do it. The last movie that Hillary and I saw together, just the two of us in theaters, was Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1, a title so long that it could conceivably, depending on how it's written, contain as many as three colons. (laughs) One thing I like to do, we don't go to the movies often, one thing I like to do is read thoughtful critical reviews of these kinds of blockbuster popcorn films, uh, mostly because these films aren't intended to undergo that kind of deep critical scrutiny. Uh, Performing film analysis of this kind requires authors to slow down fast-paced action sequences that were never meant to be slowed down. Yes, we know the laws of physics are being defied. It's right there in the title, Mission Impossible. Pipe down, nerds, okay? But I do enjoy reading these. Um, I guess the best way to... To, to talk about what I'm, what I'm trying to get at here is to share an example. Uh, also, there are always multiple move, moments in these films uh, in which a seemingly random object, in any Mission Impossible fans, a seemingly random object happens to be exactly what Ethan Hunt needs to escape a sticky situation. Uh, to give a quick, a quick example, here's a brief uh, uh, article from, this is a review from The New Yorker a July review of the film Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. One has to ask, why do these movies continue to suck us in? Perhaps because they are as fetishistic as their fans. Ouch, okay? Precision is everything. I have lost count of the objects, friendly and hostile, that click, lock, or shunt into place. The bass flute that turned into an assassin's rifle in Rogue Nation the motorbike and parachute leap in Dead Reckoning, and it it goes on from there. You get the idea. Now, the analogy that I'm preparing to make has several shortcomings, but I can't help but notice that the coin in Matthew chapter 22 serves a similar role to these objects, friendly and hostile, that click, lock, or shunt into place in the Mission Impossible movies. Are you with me? I don't know. In this case... Jesus uses the coin 
to not only escape from the trap that's laid for him, but also to set a trap for those who intended to trap him. Now, we'll return, we'll return to the coin in a, in a minute, but first, I'd like to take a look at three characteristics of this interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees' disciples. The first is the Pharisees' tone. The second is what is withheld in this interaction, what Jesus withholds from the Pharisees, what they withhold from Jesus. And the third is the repetition of the word face. Okay? Are you, are you with me? Okay. It doesn't sound like it, but we'll go ahead and, anyway. First is the Pharisees' tone. We're told this group's intentions right up front. If you spend any time reading the Gospels at all, you'll notice that trying to back Jesus into a corner seems to be a favorite activity of the Pharisees. In Matthew 12, 14, the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Same in Matthew 16, same in Matthew chapter 19. So their tone is flattery. Secondly, they withhold their true intentions from Jesus. So they're plotting to entrap Jesus through insincere praise. Now they affirm things that are true about Jesus, but they withhold their impure motives. Now Jesus, because he is God, discerns this and he, he knows. But take a look at what they say in Matthew 22, verse 16. You are sincere. You teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You show deference to no one. You do not regard people with partiality. So even though Jesus sees straight through their scheme, the Pharisees' disciples and the Herodians who approach him here are indeed clever. In fact, they, they use Jesus' own line against him. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 17, they say, Tell us then what you think. And this question, or this, this statement, tell us what you think, what does it seem to you? It's the same Greek phrase that Jesus uses repeatedly in the Gospels as a lead-in to many of his parables. So in Matthew chapter 17 or 18 or 21 or even later in chapter 22, he's always saying, what do you think? What does it seem to you? So the Pharisees are turning this back against Jesus. Despite their flattery in this well-laid trap, Jesus refuses to give them what they want. He rejects their terms. Because he knows their intentions, he withholds from them the simple answer they had hoped for. And in the process, he withholds from them the satisfaction of falling into their trap. Which leads us to the third characteristic of this interaction, which is the repetition of the word face. In that final statement of flattery to Jesus, the Pharisees' disciples say, You do not regard people with partiality. Now, in the Greek, Greek the, the literal translation of this line could read, you don't look at the face of man. Now, perhaps this primes Jesus to ask his ensuing question about, about whose face appears on the coin. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 20, we read it a moment ago, whose image is this? The word translated as image is icon in Greek. So, as we mentioned at the outset, the coin. I know you've all been waiting for me to get back to this to see what I'm talking about. The coin becomes Jesus' means of escape from this trap. So the coin, Allah, the improbable yet somehow perfectly placed objects in Mission Impossible, becomes a key that opens an escape hatch to Genesis 1.27, where God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So the question that Jesus puts back to the Pharisees' disciples then becomes... What is God's? 
What belongs to God? Well, because we bear his image and inscription, the answer is nothing less than our whole selves. This claim is all-inclusive. In fact, given what Jesus seems to be driving at here, perhaps it's more appropriate to ask, what isn't God's? And the truth is that nothing we possess, from skill to work ethic to finances to insert the thing that you couldn't bear to live without, is untouched by this claim. We bear his image. It's all his. I like the way I heard one student of this passage passage sum up Jesus' response. Once we've given God what belongs to him, there's not much left for Caesar. So the coin is not only Jesus' means of escape from this trap, it's also a trap that Jesus' pursuers walk right into. And the twist is simply this. Jesus doesn't possess the coin. He has to ask for it. As in a good action movie, it's a twist so obvious we'd kick ourselves for missing it. Stanley Hauerwas explains Jesus' maneuver here succinctly when he says, Jesus' question is meant to remind those who carry the coin of the second commandment, Exodus 20, verses 4 and 5, don't make for yourself an idol, an image. Jesus answered that the things of God are to be given to God and not to the emperor is a reminder to those who produced the coin that the very possession of the coin makes them idolaters. You can see why they walk away ashamed after this interaction. You with me? Okay. Okay, thanks. Thanks, Stuart. I really needed that. To recap, the Pharisees' disciples approach Jesus, withholding their evil intentions. In response, Jesus withholds the answer that they're fishing for. He directs their attention to the face, image on the coin. So with all of that established, I hope it is established, let's look at the Old Testament reading assigned for today. In Exodus chapter 33, the reading is from verses 12 to 23. We'll look at a portion of this. And this passage recounts an interaction between Moses and God. The exchange occurs right on the heels of the golden calf episode, which you might remember in their impatience for Moses to return from Sinai where he's been with God. The people of Israel have messed up bad. In response, God says to Moses that he will withdraw his presence from the people of Israel. So caught in the middle of this relational rift, Moses intercedes on the people's behalf. He pleads with God not to withhold his presence. And that's where we pick it up in Exodus chapter 33. Moses said to God, if your presence will not go, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people, unless you go with us? In this way, we shall be distinct, I and your people, from every people on the face of the earth. The Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing you have asked, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you the name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one shall see me and live. So, in Exodus chapter 33, verses 15 and 16, do you see the highlighted phrases on the screen? Is Mark keeping up with me feverishly back there? Notice how frequently 
Moses directs God's attention to the fact that Israel, despite their covenant unfaithfulness, still does belong to God. When God first responds favorably to Moses and says, I will go with you, the you is singular. I'll go with you, Moses, but not with the people. So Moses presses the point and says twice, remember, this is not just me. This is I and your people. Remember God. Moses' tone here is diametrically opposed to the Pharisees' disciples who approached Jesus in Matthew chapter 22. The Pharisees' disciples fawn over and flatter Jesus. Moses pleads and petitions. They search for cause to condemn Jesus. Moses searches for reasons to redeem the people. Their intentions are sinister. Moses's are sincere. Moses wants God to withhold his wrath, and God does, but also God withholds from Moses a revelation of his face or image. So here it is again, as in Matthew 22, the word image or face shows up as important in Exodus 33. There's a Hebrew word here that's repeated throughout the passage, and it gets translated a couple of different ways. In Hebrew, the word is panim. In Exodus 33, that word is translated into English as both presence and face. The word panim occurs no less than eight times in this chapter alone, mostly in Moses' repeated requests to see God, to see his presence, to see his face. And God responds to Moses by affirming several commitments to Moses and to the people. I will make my goodness pass before you, he says. I will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy upon whom I will show mercy. Now, as a side note, these affirmations of what God will do are strikingly similar to the the flattery that the Pharisees put to Jesus in Matthew 22. You can see them side by side there. But immediately following these affirmations, God, perhaps surprisingly, denies Moses' request to see his face. He withholds from Moses what he sincerely asks for. In Exodus 33, verse 23, he says it again, My face shall not be seen. So to add to the mystery of what is already a very mysterious interaction between God and Moses, in the same chapter, we're told that it wasn't uncommon for God and Moses to meet face to face. In verse 11 of that same chapter, immediately preceding the passage we read a moment ago, we're told, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. So what do we do with this? Moses seems to be doing everything right. He's interceding. He's putting the people before himself. God responds favorably by withholding his wrath, yes, and promising his presence, but he doesn't fully grant Moses' request to see his face. He withholds that revelation of his face. And reading these passages side by side, reveals a cruel irony, which is that those trying to entrap Jesus are staring straight into the face of the one who Moses longed to see. This group of hypocrites trying to entrap Jesus is so close to rightly recognizing him as Lord and Messiah, and they're looking straight into his eyes. 
but they're so focused on their agenda that they miss the truest revelation of love. They fail to see Jesus, the one whom Paul calls in Colossians 1.15, the image or the icon of the invisible God. Matthew 22 is a striking example of what John says in the prologue of his gospel. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. Or in Romans chapter 1, verse 23, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling a mortal human. I want to turn our attention to the one whose image and inscription we bear. God. We're reminded of our innate blessedness as image bearers. From Genesis 1 to Exodus 20 to Exodus 33 to Matthew 22 to John 1 to Romans 1 to Colossians 1, this question kind of reverberates throughout our scriptures. Whose image and inscription? Whose face and title? This question is central to our view of God and ourselves. Perhaps it's no surprise that this theme resurfaces when Jesus willingly endures the cross for the sake of the very ones who are so eager to entrap him. Whose image is this? Matthew chapter 26, verses 67 and 68. The high priest stands with Jesus and asks the mob, what do you think? Again, here's the same question that Jesus asks so often in Matthew. This time it's put to the mob. He's worthy of death, they answered, and they spat in his face and struck him, and some slapped him. And what inscription is written above Jesus on the cross? Whose image, whose inscription? Over his head they put the charge against him, an inscription that read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Again, true words, but insincerely put upon Jesus. Then two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. From the beginning, God has met our impatience with patience. He has met our unfaithfulness with faithfulness. He has withheld his wrath and remained faithful to his people. In Jesus, God's love outlasts our cruelty. He answers our mocking with intercession. Upon the cross, he says, Father, forgive them. Despite our unfaithfulness, we bear the image and the inscription of the one who is love. In Jesus, God reveals the full measure of his love, no longer withholding his face from us. So maybe you're here this morning and you can sympathize with Moses. Uh, you're interceding faithfully. You're desperate to see God act in your situation. You're eager for God to act either in your own circumstance or on behalf of someone you love or on behalf of perhaps a conflict raging halfway around the world. And perhaps you're here saddled with the feeling that God is withholding from you. Perhaps there's an answer you haven't received. Perhaps there's a righteous desire you have that has gone unmet. 
Perhaps you feel like God either isn't listening or isn't responding or isn't living up to his end of the bargain here. Or perhaps you're here this morning and you feel a sense of conviction. Perhaps there's an area of your life that you're unwilling to hand over to God. Perhaps you're withholding some piece of your life from his lordship, whether it's your finances or your marriage or your children or your future plans or some part of your daily routine. Something is being withheld. Whether you feel like God is withholding from you or you sense the conviction that you are withholding something from God, God has drawn near in Jesus so that whether in this age or in the age to come, no good thing will be withheld. I think there are a couple of appropriate ways for us to respond this morning as we head toward a close. And the first is to approach the table and to receive Christ's body and blood that are offered to us today. This is a reminder that he does not withhold himself from us, but he gave himself up for us. And the second is to hear true words spoken over us in an attitude of prayer. And perhaps you're convinced that God is withholding something from you, or you're tempted to doubt his love or his goodness or his care. Perhaps you think that surrendering to God what you've insisted on withholding will be too difficult or won't be worth it. Or you're beating yourself up for continually holding on to unhealthy patterns despite your best effort. So he, hear this truth this morning. He who did not spare his own son, did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long, yet we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And I'll ask us to join together for these final few lines, which will serve as our invitation to the table this morning. Would you join me in these final lines of this passage from Romans 8? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything in us and all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. As we approach the table this morning, we'll make two lines down these center aisles, and as you come forward, you'll hear the words spoken over you, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. Let's come to the table today and receive from the God who does not withhold from us.